Sometimes this world makes no sense to me. I'm torn between what others want and what is me. It seems a song is what the world demands, but how can I sing in this strange land? Until I die, I'll sing God's song, living in this Babylon, always looking for the shore of the world that I was made for. The world where the weak are finally strong and the righteous are known for righting wrongs. I want to see this earth start shaking, being impacted by a powerful generation that is finally waking up inside. And on the final day when I die, I want to hold my head up high. I want to look God himself in the eye and tell him that I tried. Morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Happy Sunday to you. Grab your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 3. If you are new to your Bible, Daniel is almost in the middle. It's an Old Testament book, but closely toward the, toward the end of it. When I tell people all the time, if they're new to reading the Bible, actually the Bible is a book, a book of books. And so just go to the table of contents and find it. We're going to be in Daniel 3. We're going to cover the whole chapter today. Uh, I'm going to read, you're going to read with me uh, the first seven verses, and then we'll get going. Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The words will be on the screen, so those of you that may not have a Bible or an app, you can cheat and just look up on the screen. Let's read together. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You were commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are all to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that it's infallible, it's inspired. It's your word to us. Even in uh, difficult, kind of confusing passages like this, you are speaking to us, and we do pray that you would do that this morning, that we would sense your presence God, that you would illumine your word to us and for us, that it would come alive in us, and that by it you might change us. God, help us to see Jesus and uh, help us to glorify him in our lives, 
in what we do. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen and amen. So if you're just joining us, we are in the fourth week of what's going to be a 12-week sermon series in the Old Testament book of of Daniel, and today we're going to work through all of chapter 3, the well-known story of the three Hebrew men, the boys uh, in the fiery furnace. Uh, But before we get to that, I want to point out perhaps some not-so-obvious repetition that we've seen so far in Daniel. I almost couldn't help myself but laughing even in the repetition that we saw in, uh, in our verses here this morning, but there's actually more repetition that we've seen in the first couple of chapters to include the chapter that we'll read together today. And so in the, the stories that we've encountered so far, we've seen this repetition that the people of God are faced with a crisis because of their faith, and then having prayerfully followed the commands of the Lord, they're delivered. And they really have miraculous deliverances by God himself, so much so that they are even honored by the civil authorities uh, after that deliverance. And we've seen this uh, two times already. We'll see it again today. We saw it in chapter one. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar and his three Hebrew friends are exiled, brought from Jerusalem into Babylon, and they have the opportunity to to be nobles in Babylon. They refuse the king's food. And they're chastised for that, but in the end, uh, they come out okay. In fact, they come out as the, the choicest, wisest counselors that Nebuchadnezzar has, and the king elevates them in his, in his kingdom. We saw it last week when Daniel uh, was able to give Nebuchadnezzar this traumatic dream, but also the interpretation of that dream that God had given him about the future. And it was a dream that, for all intents and purposes, Nebuchadnezzar would not have wanted to hear. And yet Daniel found favor with the king. And at the end of chapter two, we see that once again, Nebuchadnezzar elevated Daniel uh, to, um, to, he exalted him in his kingdom. And we'll also see it today in the story of these three Hebrew men going through the fire. And with that, there, there are at least a couple of lessons that I think we should Uh, pay attention to so far in the story of of Daniel. The first thing is that it teaches us that the devil's schemes and its attacks aren't just occasional activities. So these these Hebrew men, Daniel and his his three friends, so far are the focal point of of the story of the the narrative. And success, uh, uh, in, in more than one occasion, they are brought to the, 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 the test of their faith. And we shouldn't see that as, as happenstance. For sure, uh, the enemy of our souls is behind this. Satan doesn't just try to tempt us once or twice and then leave us alone. The trials he brings to us are continual. The temptations that he shoves in front of us are persistent. And this makes what Paul says in Ephesians 6.11 all the more important for our lives that we should put on the whole armor of God so that we'll be able to stand against the devil's schemes. That we'll be able to resist his continual attacks because he's going to continually and persistently attack us, much like we see with Daniel and his three Hebrew friends. The other thing that Paul would exhort us to do is to watch and pray if we're going to resist the devil. That's the first lesson. The second lesson is is similar to that. We've seen... uh, in these first few chapters also, that God honors his people when his people are faithful to him. 
God honors us when we're faithful to Him. When God's people choose to serve Him despite the, the, the threats, the oppression, the pressure of the world around us, when God's people choose to follow Him no matter the consequences uh, that might befall us, then blessings always ensue. Blessings always occur. Now, I should qualify that. Many of you uh, would give examples in your life where you just did the right thing. You were doing what God has prescribed for you to do in His Word, and perhaps you wouldn't say that the result, the consequence was necessarily a blessing. I think what we find in Scripture and in the experience of our lives is that God chooses to bless us, and how that blessing comes manifests in, in many different and oftentimes surprising ways. Listen to what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 8. He says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. What's Paul saying? If you read a little further, he'll say that we carry in ourselves the, the death of Jesus so that life might ensue. And perhaps in a strange way to us, that's a, that, you know, that's a hard way to get a blessing from God, but therein uh, does God grow us and draw us to himself. And that's the case with, with Daniel and his, his three friends. Trial after trial, they, they meet. Does it lead them to despondency and doubt? Actually not. It just does what God intends for it to do. It produces people of character who trust God and who grow to be inflexibly faithful to him, even in the face of the strongest opposition and persecution. I think this is, a, this is, this is not a rule, but this is what we see throughout our lives as Christians as we're faithful to the Lord, that our maturity as Christians oftentimes comes by the very testing that we see God putting Daniel and his friends through. And so the issue before us as we come to, to chapter 3 is this. Will the image of God bow down to the image of man? With the image of God, God has created us in his image, right? Made us vice regents over all of creation, called everything to subdue to us. And what we're seeing here is, is this challenge. Will the image of God, people like you and me, bow down to those things that are created by the hands of men? And will we worship that instead of uh, offering our worship to God? Will we bow down to the image of man which man has made. Now, we already read the first seven verses, and in these first seven verses, we see one of the best examples of unchecked political power run amok. Unchecked political power run amok. And we're meant to notice that the, 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 the threat it causes to God's people. Nebuchadnezzar sets up this 90-foot statue. It's completely overlaid in gold, and we don't know his motives, but in one aspect, he seems to be attempting to counter the dream that Daniel interpreted earlier. We looked at that last week in chapter 2. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this traumatic dream, a dream that he asked his counselors to first give him the dream, but also give him the interpretation, and none of the wise men could do it. And so Daniel comes in, as he goes to God, and he prays with his three friends, and God gives him the dream and the interpretation. And the dream is, is, is such. Daniel sees um, this, this statue. The head of the statue is all gold. The shoulders and the chest are silver. The middle section is silver, uh, bronze. The, the legs are iron. The feet uh, are a mixture of iron and clay. And uh, with this dream, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Daniel gets the interpretation for the 
for the king that uh, not only do you have this statue, but you have uh, uh, miraculously uh, a small stone is sort of cut out of we don't know what by, uh, by hands that are not human, and this small stone is dropped on the feet of this statue, and the statue not only uh, is crushed, but it disintegrates and it blows into the wind. So the interpretation from, from Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar is this dream is about you and about future kingdoms, that Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold and that there would be uh, uh, a falling of not only Nebuchadnezzar himself, but also of his kingdom. And there would be successive kingdoms that would come, all inferior, inferior to, to Babylon the Great, and they would rule the world for a time. But ultimately, God would, uh, God would, uh, he would uh, hew, uh, hew, is that right? Hew? He would carve out uh, a stone uh, that would grow the size of a mountain and, and ultimately would grow to overcome the whole earth. Uh, and of course, that's a, a story. Of, that's the, the picture that he's given Nebuchadnezzar is about the growth of the of the kingdom of God. And so that really is uh, is is what uh, um, the, the 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 thing that Nebuchadnezzar is trying to counter uh, counter over in uh, in chapter three. So we have here this ninety foot statue, and the question is. Could the statue of gold be Nebuchadnezzar's attempt to, to deflect and resist precisely the will of God revealed in that dream? We see that in chapter 2. We'll see it in chapter 3 and 4. That perhaps is precisely what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He's attempting to force the will of God and to say that his kingdom will endure, and he's going to make it endure. And so this head of gold and the, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 has led to this gargantuan 90-foot statue in the plain of Dor. And there are a couple of things, interesting things to note in these verses. First, there's a repetition. You saw it in verse 2, the repetition of, uh, of all the, the leaders, the officials that Nebuchadnezzar assembles to, um, to pay homage to this statue. He says there's satraps and prefects and governors and counselors and treasurers, the, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, all the officials of the, of the provinces. We see the repetition of the musical instru instruments in verse 5. I'm not going to, I mean, this is a lot, right? And I, I couldn't help but, after reading this many times this week, but thinking to myself, why doesn't the author just use a pronoun? Like, like, say, and they. And Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar invited all of them. Like in the South, we say, all y'all. All y'all come, and I'm going to dedicate my statue, and it's going to be a great thing. And with the, with the instruments, instead of naming all of them, why didn't he just say, and Nebuchadnezzar, when he dedicated his statue, he invited all y'all, and he had this awesome orchestra, and every instrument was, was, was playing, right? But of course, uh, he's saying something here, but the most glaring repeated phrase is the image, and I quote, the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Did you see that phrase in, in the first seven verses? It's actually repeated five times. Now, to be sure, the identity of the statue is not made clear. Um, it probably wasn't a, a statue made in the likeness of Nebuchadnezzar, perhaps one of his gods, or maybe he set it up so that uh, it was the image of a god, but it, it represented him. For sure, that was the case. But the, and, and that, that, the meaning is clear in that, in that case. 
It stood for the power that Nebuchadnezzar had. That statue was Nebuchadnezzar's de uh, declaration that as king, he could set up gods for his people to worship, that he was going to be the one that would prescribe the worship for his people. And the author here is helping us to grasp the narcissism on display here. Did you hear that? He's, he's showing us a picture of a leader run amok and the narcissism that's on display here. It's a testament to the immense power that Nebuchadnezzar had, power that he was abusing, to, to even summon all these people to himself and that they'd obey his command. That he just put up a statue, play some music, and all these people would simply bow down to him. It's a testament to how powerful he was on the earth at this time. But there's also a unique religious overtone to this gathering. These, these world leaders are being invited to a worship service. And it's a worship service where worship, the, the message being communicated is that, you know, as a people, you can serve whatever God you want. So as long as it's clear that the personal God, that yeah, your personal God takes second place to the God of Babylon, specifically Nebuchadnezzar. We've seen this throughout human history, haven't we? This is exactly what the Romans did to the Christians in the first century. The Romans were polytheistic. After they destroyed a, a, a nation of people, they would take the people, make them their slaves, and then they would allow the people, they would appease them by allowing them to serve their gods. And the Romans basically said, hey, you can serve your God, but Caesar is Lord. We see this, we've seen this in, in Russia with Lenin, in, in China with Mao Zedong these larger-than-life images that the people, uh, their, 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 their pictures and statues were, were erected everywhere, and the people were called to idolize them. Even today, you'll, you'll see artifacts of, of Mao Zedong and Lenin in these countries. They're to hold them in high esteem and almost worship them. We see this in t uh, contemporary China even today. I was meeting, uh, having lunch with, uh, breakfast actually, uh, this week with a seminary classmate of mine who used to be in China for 12 years as a missionary. He got kicked out for um, advancing the gospel, and so he's back here uh, in this area uh, as a domestic missionary, and he uh, just made me aware that the, 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 the Chinese government is doing the same thing right now. They permit Christians to worship freely, but you can only worship as a Christian in a state-sponsored, state-regulated, official church. So it's state-sponsored religion. That's why in China you have uh, the, the, the church that grows is the underground church. I think our culture in many ways puts us, puts the same pressure on us. The pressure to put God second. And it's, and it's kind of subtle. We hear this. You can keep your spiritual beliefs, but you, you need to remain, you need to keep them private. Be a Christian all you want. Just be a Christian in your own house. Just keep it quiet. Under the guise of separation of church and state, we're, we're told the public sphere, sphere is no place to voice your religion. You can believe in the Ten Commandments. We just don't want them erected in our courthouse. You Christians can believe whatever you want, but no, by no means should you try to influence others with your beliefs. Even in our schools, our schools can teach all kinds of hypotheses in the name of science, yet any idea that touts the biblical idea of intelligent design to our world is off limits for public discussion or debate. So we're fortunate in our society that we're not likely to be thrown in a fiery furnace for what we believe, yet the same conflict does ensue. 
And here's what the conflict asks. Whose God will you serve? Here's the second thing we see in our text. We see the pressure to perform. Look at verse 8. Therefore, at the same time, therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King, King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a, a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, certain Jews, whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And so these verses picture what it means to be caught in a, in a crossfire, meaning uh, the, the Hebrew men. Notice, it, it's, they are not trying to draw attention to themselves. They, they didn't go out to, to Home Depot or Staples and get signs and draw on it with magic markers and then come to this gathered assembly to, to picket them and tell them how wrong they were to, to bow down to an image. They hadn't gone out and created pamphlets and then sent these pamphlets out decrying the activity of Nebuchadnezzar. They hadn't organized any national group of Jewish believers protesting the imposition of, of on, their, on their First Amendment rights. They didn't have First Amendment rights, of course. They aren't doing any of those kind of things. So what is it they had done? They basically stayed faithful to God. They refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. They disobeyed for, what them, for, uh, for them what would have been a blasphemous command and a violation of their biblical ethic. Not the first commandment, the first and second commandment. Having no other gods, not worshiping any, any false image of God. And, and when they didn't bow down, it was the Chaldeans who reported them to, to Nebuchadnezzar. So a couple things that sticks out from, from their actions. First, they stand alone. There's, a, there's probably hundreds, perhaps even thousands of leaders there from all over, and they're all bowing down, and yet these three Hebrew men are standing alone. One commentator I read this week says, standing up for God will often be a lonely activity. There, there are times in life when to do what is right means you simply can't hide in the crowd. Others might be bowing down, and you'll be the lone man standing, and you can't help but be noticed. And it's in those moments that I think we have to remember that we aren't serving to appease the crowd and to necessarily be in the in-group doing what they do. We have an audience of one. And when we're faithful to him, he's faithful to us. So they stand alone. The second thing is nonconformity has its consequences. Look at verse 13. The Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar goes into... Uh, like a rage, my grandma would say that he's having a hissy fit, right? When his authority is challenged and, 
I have to believe Nebuchadnezzar's initial reaction is, is one of unbelief. You can tell that he has some relationship with these three men. Of course, they are officials of some sort in, in Babylon. He knew them personally and was addressing them as such. And so he's thinking, surely these men know who I am, and they would not choose to, to defy me publicly like this. And they really embarrassed me in front of all the leaders of, of my empire. And, and then he seems to give them another chance to simply comply in verse 14 and 15. And, and then there comes the ultimatum in verse 16, that, that if you don't worship the statue that, that I've set up with my own hands, when this music starts to play, there's going to be no hope for you. I'm going to make you die the most cruel of deaths. And then he says, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? It tells us more about the narcissism of this man, but it also tells him in his heart he thinks that he is God. Perhaps the highlight of this whole chapter are these next two verses. Verse 17. Actually, start back at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Strong words, right? Strong words in front of a stronger man. I think what's being displayed before us is, is that they were completely submissive to God. What does it look like to, to submit to God's will for your life? I, I think they give a textbook answer here. Here's what they didn't say. They didn't say, we're going to trust in God because he's going to deliver us. They actually didn't even know if God were going to deliver them or not. They said, we're going to trust God even if he decides not to deliver us. So their faith was not in deliverance for deliverance sake. Their faith was in their God. Every time I read it, this verse kind of sends chills down my back. Firstly, because of, I mean, these, these are just brave men. And I, I put myself in their position sometimes like, oh, man, would I be able to do that? Would I be able to have the, the wherewithal to do what they're doing in this moment? Do, do you ever do that? Do you put yourself in their place? And it's like, man, would I, would I be able to answer the call? The call of faith, the call to trust God in, in those tough moments. Where would my heart, would it stand? But this verse since chills down my back, primarily because God is actually calling all of us to this kind of loyalty and this kind of faith. But here's the important caveat, Transit Church. God is not calling you to have faith for when it's your turn to get put in a fiery furnace. He's not. Hopefully not. God doesn't necessarily give you the grace to face any and every desperate situation that you could ever imagine yourself in. God promises to sustain you only in the ones he's actually bringing you into. Does that make sense to you? I think it's like Israel in the wilderness. You have these, like a million people out in the, out in the middle of nowhere and they need God's provision. 
And so they cry out. They actually complain to God. All right, Lord, we need some food. And what, God, what does God do? He causes the miracle of manna to come down. And it's an everyday kind of a thing. And he tells them, all right, Israel, go out. It's going to be a wafer-like product. It's going to rain down from the sky. It's going to be on the ground. Pick up what you need for today. Don't, don't get too much. Don't get too little. Because if you get too much, it's going to rot. Every day I'm going to do this, and so every day you go out and get what you need. And it's the same thing here. God gives us grace for today. The other thing that this brings up is this idea of the daily pressure. We sang a song here really uh, calling this the battle, the battle to conform uh, that's being fought in our hearts every day over much lesser issues. You know, every day you and I get asked this question, am I going to declare God to be my God and give him my primary allegiance, come what may, or am I going to bow down to the many gold overlay idols that the world presents to me? And here's the problem for for all of us. The idols that are presented to us, they're not 90-foot statues overlaid with gold. They're the daily pressures and desires and attitudes of the culture that pressures us and tells us that what we need if we are to live successfully and to live worthwhile lives is only achieved if we bow down to it. Our idols call to us incessantly saying, if you bow down to me, I'll promise to bless you. And if you don't, I'll curse you and ruin your life. And I think our society is screaming that to us all the time. So for some of us, the, the, the version of Nebuchadnezzar's golden image that we face is, is respect and admiration from other people. We crave it. We want it. We'll do anything to get it. I, I, I really think about our young people in this regard because there's a lot of pressure on uh, young people in society to be in the in-group. And so they go to school and they're amongst their, their peers. And peer pressure is like beating down on them. And under the guise of peer pressure, what do they do? They'll tone down their faith. They'll tone down what they believe so that they fit in. Sometimes they'll date the wrong kinds of people. Sometimes they'll be disrespectful to people in authority just so they fit in. And when they do that, they're bowing down to the idols of this world. But it's not just our young people. It's, it's, it's those of us who are adults in the room. In the neighborhood, it's keeping up with the Joneses. It's playing uh, the part of affluence, perhaps living beyond our means. For those of you in the room that are professionals, it's climbing the corporate government ladder, doing whatever it takes, even the sacrifice of your family and all of your time to get the right position or the right title. For those of you in the military, it's deploying so that you have the right job on your officer efficiency report or your enlisted record brief, whatever y'all are calling those these days, so that you have a better chance to get promoted or to get a command. And I would tell you, even pastors succumb to this idea of, of, of the pressure to conform. When pastors get together, the question we all ask, how big is your church? And I, you know, Nick and I would tell you, there's always this pressure on you to, you know, to, to fib a little. Like, oh, I, I lead a mega church. Right? And what our text uh, exhorts us is that when we stand up to our idols, we had better be prepared for retribution. And that's what happens in our text. Look at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury 
and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound in the burning, fiery furnace. Verse 24, then, Nebuchadnezzar, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we cast three men bound into the fire? Did we not? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. This, this scene underlines, uh, firstly, the helplessness and the hopelessness that we sometimes face when life and circumstance and situation presses us. We don't, we, we're like boxed in. We don't know where to go. Sometimes we feel like the, that, that life puts us in a position. Sometimes God calls us into a place or a circumstance that it looks like, man, this is not going to work. There's no way uh, that I'm going to survive this. Like, this is going to overwhelm me. And that's, that's what it looks like here in this situation, doesn't it? But, but there's a couple of amazing twists of events that the narrative uh, presents to us that catches us off guard. The first is verse 22. The very ones who obey Nebuchadnezzar's command, his, 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 his soldiers, his mighty men, they're the ones who die while God spares these Hebrew men. Of course, the other is in verse 24, that as Nebuchadnezzar is watching this fire raise, this fire that he says, heat it up seven times hotter. Not only does Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego appear to be walking in the fire unharmed, while they are immersed in this fiery furnace, they're joined by a fourth individual who, in Nebuchadnezzar's own words, has divine-like qualities. He calls him a son of the gods. And of course, the question is asked, I mean, who is this? Who is this, this fourth person in the fire? Is it a Christophany, uh, uh, an appearance of Jesus before his incarnation? Is it an angel, the angel of the Lord that God sends to tend to them? And uh, we can only speculate because the text doesn't tell us. It doesn't necessarily want us to know. But I think uh, we're supposed to come away with the interpretation that this is how God draws near to his people in the midst of trials. This is, this is David when he's talking in Psalm 23 about the Lord being our shepherd. Psalm 23, verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they, they comfort me. So what are we seeing here? I think we're seeing God draws near to his people. God draws near to his people in the midst of, of persecution. He comforts them. If you've ever read about the martyrs of the the third through the, the fifth or sixth century, you hear about men and women who are stripped of their clothes, they're tied to stakes, they're burned at the stake, and on their lips are the, the hymns of God. They're singing songs to Zion, and there's, there's, there's no expression of agony in their plight at all. 
you hear of these martyrs who are laid down and their bodies are stretched so that they're actually torn in two or they're, they're literally tossed to lions so that they be mauled to death. And in those instances, the, 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 the history records show that somehow these people uh, show no signs of, of agony or of the plight of the, the circumstance. I mean, how, what do we make of that? We can only make of it God was with them, that God was comforting them, that his rod and his staff comforted them in their situation. In fact, God doesn't merely rescue these three Hebrew men from this fire. He sends his personal emissary to pass through the fire with them. I think those words are important. They're not in our text, but they're they're insinuated. This idea of of, of God being with them, being with us. What does that remind you of? Emmanuel, right? Emmanuel, the, the, the person of Jesus that comes, incarnates himself in flesh, and born as a baby, but he lives our life, drinks our drink, wears our clothes, walks our road, and ultimately dies in our place for our sin. Emmanuel, God with us. We don't, God is not just with us at Christmas time. He's with us every day. All day, when you sleep, when you wake up, in good times and in bad times, God is with us. The presence of God is so real to these gentlemen that they aren't just unharmed. Their clothes don't even have the stench of smoke, which is like insane. Here's what Isaiah says, Isaiah 43, 2. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the the flame shall not consume you. I think the scary thing here is that God doesn't promise to take his people around the danger or over the danger or even under the danger, like we're Aquaman or something. It, It seems that the anticipated path for us as followers of Jesus is always through. Does that scare you? God takes us through. If you're reading with us in uh, our community Bible reading, we just experienced this in Acts chapter 14. Uh, community Bible reading, CBR, at the beginning of the year, for those of you who are uh, new with us, we're reading the Bible together slowly throughout the whole year. And uh, we read an Old Testament passage and a New Testament passage. And in our closed Facebook page, we kind of share what we're learning, what's sticking out, and how God is, uh, you know, perhaps uh, informing us, but also change, slowly changing us. And so you can get a free journal in the very front foyer uh, for yours to take, and we would ask you to, to join us. But in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas on their on their first missionary journey, and we hear uh, Paul or uh, Luke recording these words. When, they had, when Paul and Barnabas had preached the gospel to the city of Derbe and had made disciples, they returned to a couple of other cities that they had already visited, Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. And here's what verse 22 says, that Paul and Barnabas strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraged them to continue in their faith, and saying that through, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul got it, right? As, as God's kingdom suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. The kingdom of God doesn't come about just by happenstance. Just because we pray it and wish it and hope for it, here he's telling us God takes us through. And it's through people that he takes through 
by which he brings about his kingdom. But, but, but here's where this passage is leading us. Ultimately, this, this divine figure in this fiery furnace with the Hebrew men point us to Jesus. Because Jesus went through. Jesus goes through his own personal fiery furnace experience when he's all alone on the cross. And so in our text, we see that God was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. And, and, and like them, we have this promise of comfort and his sustaining presence with us in our trials. And this is only true because Jesus on the cross endured the utter aloneness of abandonment with God. There, there was no one there to be Jesus' companion or to share his burden. There was no angel sent to relieve him of, of his agony. There's no saving hand from God that he reached down from the sky and pulled him off the cross that he might escape the death that was his to take on. And Jesus endures the fiery pain of the cross and when he does it, he does it for you and he does it for me. He does it for these three Hebrew men and all those that would believe in him after us. And he does it out of obedience to God the Father and the love for those that God is calling to himself. You know, you and I, we deserve the wrath of God for all the ways every day that we bow down to the, to the idols of our culture in utter faithlessness to God. But here's what Jesus does. He remains faithful, bearing God's fiery judgment and the curse of our sin in our place. And, and so how do we respond to, to what Jesus does? I, I can only think of a few words, and it begins, oh, what a Savior. Oh, what a Savior. Guess what? That's not how Nebuchadnezzar responds. Look at verse 26. We'll finish with this. The Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out from the fire, and the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, the cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of smoke had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province uh, of Babylon. And so there's some good things happening in the, the last part of this text. Uh, in these last verses, we see a triumphant faith. God is with these three Hebrew men, and they make it all the way through, come out of the fiery furnace completely unscathed. But, but that's juxtaposed to this picture uh, of this tyrant who's still intact because of his depravity. Nebuchadnezzar's words may seem gracious, but his words also seemed gracious at the end of chapter 2. Remember the end of chapter 2? Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar this, this dream that he doesn't want to hear about. And the interpretation that ensues that says, You eventually, O king, although you are great, you're a king among the kings, a god of gods, and God is going to cause your downfall. And then, because he had promised it, he rewards Daniel 
he rewards him with uh, a purple robe and, and with dignity in, in his kingdom, along with the, the other three Hebrew men. And in Daniel chapter 2, it's almost as if Nebuchadnezzar has been converted, and it looks like that's happening again until we look closely at what Nebuchadnezzar does not say. Notice that his words, first verse 28, he talks about the God of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, but what he doesn't do is acknowledge that this God is his God. He basically says, you know what, this God, if he can do this, he's a pretty amazing God. He's their God. Verse 29, he doesn't declare that the land of Babylon and henceforth forevermore for, will forego all their idols and worship the true and living God. He basically, basically says, all right, it looks like we got another God that we can throw in the fray. And you guys would be right to go ahead and worship this God too because he seems to be able to do mighty things. It's a superficial response. I think it's right to see that firstly, Nebuchadnezzar is shocked by the miracle. He can't deny that. And no doubt, he's impressed by the courage of these three young men. But as we'll see next week in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar proves to us that he has fundamentally not had a change of heart. And here's a lesson of that. Sadly, when you get as many chances to repent and turn from wickedness as Nebuchadnezzar has had, eventually it leads to forced humility. We'll see that next week. What about you? Have you felt God calling you? Have you felt guilty over the, the actions, the, the, the things of your life, some of the things that you've done and said, and felt God pulling you to himself, but you've not responded, or you've responded superficially? Repentance and faith, repentance and belief, repentance and turning, turning from our sin to God is for us all. And it's an everyday thing. And when we don't respond to God in repentance, turning from our wickedness and in faith to him, it eventually leads to forced humility. So I started with two lessons. Let me give you two more as I close. The first is this. And it's going to sound cliche-ish, but I mean, this is what's coming out of the text, right? And we're going to preach the text. God works all things for good for those who love him. You guys know that verse? Romans 8, 28. Those of you in the foundations class, that would be a great verse for you to memorize. That's what Paul says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. This is, this, this is what Paul is saying. It doesn't mean that God removes from, from us all trials and suffering. It doesn't mean that our lives won't have a measure of hardship, that God places this bubble around us so we don't experience temptation or testing. But what it does say is when we're faithful to God's purposes, it ends in our good and for our joy. The second thing is, is kind of cliche as well, and it's this. God gives us grace in time of need. Hebrews 4, verse 16. Let us then draw let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let's do that now. Father, we're grateful. We thank you that you give us opportunities to come to you with the situations and the circumstances of our lives. God, we even in this moment say thank you for those times that you press us and that you... Uh, test us, that you allow us to experience trial and tribulation. 
because ultimately they grow us and they draw us to you. A reminder of the psalmist that, that says, Lord, you have tested us, you've tried us as with silver. You bring us into the net, you lay a crushing burden on our backs, you let men ride over our heads. We go through the fire and we go through the water. Yet this is what the psalmist concluded. You've brought us out to a place of abundance. And that was what, that's what I would pray for, for all of us here. Particularly when life presses us, when we are on the brink to giving in to the idols of our culture, God, that you would be with us. That you would take us through, Lord, but you would not take us through without being with us. God, that you be Emmanuel for us through the fire, through the water. Because when you're with us, Lord God, you enable us to do all that you call us to do. That's our prayer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen and amen.